word, please, and turn to the book of the Revelation, chapter 21. I'm going to read verses 1 through 8 for our text this morning. This is the final message in the series of the signs of the times, because this is where we will end up. If you love the Lord Jesus Christ, you've been washed in his precious blood. He's filled you with his spirit. Your life has been changed, and you love him. You'll spend eternity with him in a wonderful place. We're going to talk about that. And I do want to say this, give a disclaimer, uh, no matter, and I, and I realize I, I'm not near the preacher that some preachers are that have preached on heaven. R.G. Lee was called the Prince of Preachers, and he used to say before he preached on heaven, he said, I want you to know uh, that I will not do justice to heaven this morning. No human tongue uh, can describe something the Bible says is indescribable. And uh, when he was on his deathbed, Adrian Rogers was his pastor, and uh, as Dr. Lee was dying, he had a smile on his face. And uh, as he was about to die, Adrian Rogers said, Dr. Lee, is it beautiful? And he said, it's more beautiful than I imagined. He said, my words pale in comparison to what heaven is, is like. Those are the last words he said. And I believe he had a glimpse on the other side. I believe he saw where he was going. And so if you're saved today, and if you have loved ones in heaven today, You'll enjoy this message, and I hope all of us will be challenged by it. So if you found Revelation 21, stand with me, please, to show our respect for the reading of God's word. And this is the word of the living God. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and there was no longer any sea. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Now the dwelling of God is with men, and he will live with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain, for the old order of things has passed away. He who was seated on the throne said, I am making everything new. Then he said, write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. He said to me, it is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To him who is thirsty, I will give to drink without cost from the spring of the water of life. He who overcomes will inherit all this, and I will be his God, and he will be my son. But the cowardly, the unbelieving, the vile, the murderers, the sexually immoral, those who practice magic arts, the idolaters, and all liars, their place will be in the fiery lake of burning sulfur. This is the second death. May God add his blessings to the reading of his holy word. You may be seated. Now, I did not give you a sermon in the sentence this morning because I wanted to give you a synopsis of what has taken place in the signs of the times. Uh, when Jesus went to Calvary, and I believe that the battle was won, not on Calvary, but I believe the battle was won in Gethsemane. Because when he got to Gethsemane, uh, Satan had done everything he could do to keep him from going to the cross. But in the Garden of Gethsemane, our Lord prayed, Father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. And remember, he said, with God, all things are possible. And he believed that. But God said no to his own son. And so he said, nevertheless, not my will, but thine be done. That was the place of victory in the garden. 
Calvary uh, just became something that he had to accomplish. He surrendered to the will of the Father in the garden. And by the way, don't feel sorry for Jesus on the cross thinking, oh, he thought if he died, he'd stay dead forever. No, he had already said on many occasions uh, that the Son of Man will deliver himself into the hands of sinful men and they will crucify me. But on the third day, I will rise from the dead. So there was the crucifixion. Then there was the resurrection. Then 40 days later, there was the ascension. Then 10 days later, the Holy Spirit came down on the church on the day of Pentecost. And since that time, we have been in what is called by some Bible commentators, the age of grace or the church age or the age of the Gentiles. And that began when the Holy Spirit came down. Now the Holy Spirit is alive and well on planet earth today. Uh, God the Holy Spirit is here. He's in this building today. Uh, he's in your heart if you love Jesus. Uh, if you have sin in your life, uh, he is grieved in your life and he's trying to get you to straighten that out. Uh, but he never leaves you nor forsakes you. That's what the Bible says. He's there to correct you and he wants you to be all that God intended for you to be. But we are in the age of grace, the church age, the age of the Gentiles. And the very next event on God's prophetic calendar is the rapture of the church. Christ comes in the clouds. The dead are raised and saints are raptured. We're changed in a moment in the twinkling of an eye. I preached last week on, uh, on, on, the, on hell and on the great white throne judgment. Uh, but Christians will not go through that. We never have to stand before the great white throne. When we die, our spirit and our soul go immediately to God. Our bodies are buried, but at the rapture, our bodies will receive resurrection, glorified bodies will rise to meet Christ in the clouds and will be with the Lord. Now we'll be with the Lord in the air for seven years because when the rapture takes place, the prophetic time clock starts ticking again and seven years on earth will be the most horrendous period in the history of the world. If you thought the tsunami was bad, if you thought 9-11 was bad, uh, you haven't seen anything yet because the wrath of God will be poured out on this sinful world. For three and a half years, it will appear like the Antichrist is a man of peace. By the way, what kind of world does the Antichrist have to come into to be effective? Can he come into a world where the economy is booming? Can he come into a world where... Uh, where we, we are, have all synthesized everything? No, that's what he is. He's coming in to bring it all together, but it's not in the name of the Father, it's in the name of Satan. And, uh, and the stage could be very, being set at this very moment for Jesus to return and for the rise of the Antichrist. But there will be seven years of tribulation. During that time, the Revelation tells us that 144,000 Jewish evangelists like the Apostle Paul will preach the gospel after the rapture and uh, when all these things start to happen, they will be so effective. Uh, Bible scholars believe more people will be saved in the tribulation years than were saved in all the church years. Now, you say, how in the world is that possible? Well, our, our population of the world is greater now than it's ever been. Uh, and not necessarily in the West, but uh, in South America and in Asia and Africa, even with all the famines and tragedies in Africa, the population is booming there. And so there are actually more people living on earth right now than have ever lived on earth before. And so we need to understand that. Uh, the population is great and they'll have great effectiveness. Uh, then after seven years, Satan is bound and he's bound how long? For a thousand years. 
He's put in chains. He's thrown into a bottomless pit. And for a thousand years, we return to the earth. That's the second coming. Jesus comes down to the Mount of Olives. He goes into Jerusalem. He sets up the throne of David, and he sits on the throne of David. And for a thousand years, we reign with him. What a wonderful privilege that will be, coming down from heaven, reigning on earth with Christ, in living on earth as God intended for us to do for a thousand years. Then after a thousand years, Satan is released for a time uh, to deceive people, and there will be people who are deceived. You say, why would God allow Satan to be let loose again? Well, because there were people who've been born during the thousand-year reign. They have never had an opportunity to be tempted. As Adam and Eve were tempted, as you and I were tempted, and they have to make a choice. And some of them will be deceived by Satan. Even after living a thousand years, many of them have lived many of those years, in relatively heaven on earth. And so then after that thousand years is over, Satan is bound and thrown into a lake of fire. Then the great white throne judgment I preached about last week will take place. And then we have a new heaven and a new earth. You say, how do you know that? Because John says it right here. Notice the first thing he says. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. The book of Revelation changes its perspective. Sometimes John is in on earth looking up at heaven, and sometimes he's in heaven looking down on earth. And, and in this instance, the millennial reign is over, and as he looks up, Satan has been bound, thrown into uh, the lake of fire, the great white throne judgment has, been take, has taken place. All the people that are going to go to hell have gone to hell. And John looks up and he said, I saw a new heaven and a new earth. Now, what happens? He says in verse 2, I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem doing what? Coming down out of heaven from God. Uh, I believe that we may spend eternity right here, not on this old troubled world, this old trouble world is going to be destroyed. But God is going to make a new heaven and a new earth. And that city is the new Jerusalem, Mount Zion. And it's going to come down and we're going to spend eternity. Now listen, I want to tell you something. Don't think, oh great, I have to spend eternity sitting on a cloud, wearing a, wearing a robe with wings on it and, and playing a harp. Oh boy, that sounds like fun. I want to tell you this. Heaven is going to be the most awesome experience you can imagine. I, I was talking to the children one day, and they had, the, the children sometimes have that opinion of heaven. And we're going to sit on clouds and sing songs, and everybody has to obey, and you have to wear the same thing. And I, well, let me tell you, I said, have you ever been to Six Flags? Yeah. I said, have you ever ridden a roller coaster at Six Flags? Yeah. I said, you know what my favorite thing is on a roller coaster? They said, what? And I said, when you get up to the top of that first hill, you know, you know what they do? You get on that car, and it starts going up the hill, and, so, and they make it feel like it's going to slide back. You ever notice that? You know, they're trying to tempt you, trying to scare you on well. And then you get up to the top, and it seems like you perch forever. And then that thing starts down. And when it starts down, you know, we sing, heaven came down and glory filled my soul. Well, the roller coaster goes down, and my stomach comes up and fills my mouth. And uh, I don't throw up, but I, I, I just get, I, I get all excited. That is what heaven is going to be like. That, <gasps> take my breath away. It's going to be great. I mean, you cannot imagine how great heaven is. But there are seven no mores, and really I found one since then. So I'm going to add one this morning at the end. It's not in your bulletin. You have to have a pen out to write this down. Uh, but first of all, John said there was no longer any sea in verse 1. 
Now, what did the sea represent to John? The sea represent what separated him from Ephesus. He was on the Isle of Patmos. Do you remember why he was on the Isle of Patmos? Because the emperor was afraid of him. He was literally afraid of an old preacher because John had pastored in Ephesus and everybody in Ephesus loved old pastor John. And the emperor knew if he killed John, John would be martyred and it would cause him even a more fervent revival to break out. And he said the people would turn against him. So he said, I know what I'll do with old John. I'll just put him on that old rock out there in the Mediterranean. I'll put him on Patmos. And so he put him on Patmos and Every night, John could look across the sea and see the lights of Ephesus. And he'd think about all those uh, church members back there that he had baptized, all those Christians he had discipled, all those little children he had led to Christ. In fact, if you read 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John, you'll see he says, my little children, my little children, my little children. He was separated uh, from doing what God wanted him to do. And it's important because in heaven, we will never be separated from what God wants us to do or what we think God wants us to do. Now, you know what happened while he was on Patmos? Revelation happened. I love it. He was in the spirit on the Lord's day. Do you think he was a Baptist? I don't think John was a Baptist. I, there was John the Baptist, but he already lost his head by this time. And, uh, but I think old John was sitting there on, on Patmos. I don't think he was a Baptist because if he'd have been a Baptist, here's what he'd been doing. Well, here I am on this old island. Uh, the director of missions hadn't even come to visit me. Nobody sent me a fruitcake last Christmas. All those visits I made, all those people I witnessed to, and I'm sitting over here. And uh, now John didn't do that. You know what John was doing on the Lord's Day? Oh, John was having a spell. It said, I was in the spirit on the Lord's Day. Whoa! And all of a sudden, I heard a voice say, come up here. And I got to see what I wrote down in the book of Revelation. Listen, what I'm saying is this. God has a purpose for your life. What was God's purpose for John's life? Was it to stay in Ephesus and pastor that church? No, it was to be put on Patmos so he could put the last book in the Bible. And I want to tell you, this is the last book in the Bible. I don't care what Joseph Smith says. I don't care what Mitt Romney says. This is the last book in the Bible, and it says very plainly, don't add to or take away from this word. And John, put, John was put on Patmos so he could say, this is what God wants you to know. But there's, you know, in, in other words, he thought he was out of the will of God maybe, but he wasn't. He was put on Patmos to do the will of God. But he said, there was no more sea. He said, I'll never be concerned about doing God's will anymore. In heaven, we will live in the center of God's will. Why? Because we'll be like Christ. What did Christ say? Not my will, but thine be done. You say, well, I say that all the time. No, you don't. You, if you think you do, you're deceiving yourself. There was only one person who ever said, not my will, but thine be done, and lift it. And that was the Lord Jesus. No more see means we'll live God's will perfectly. Then there's no more sorrow. Notice there's no more mourning. Now, we've had a lot of mourning going on. This last Monday, I drove to Hartsville and did a, a funeral for a man that was like a daddy to me as a young preacher. In fact, without this man's influence in my life, I don't know that I'd be standing in this pulpit this morning. I don't know what my life would have been like. I was all set to go to Southwestern Baptist Theological Seminary, which is not a bad school. It's a good school. But God didn't want me to go there, and this man encouraged me to look at New Orleans. I really didn't want to go. I, I, I didn't like New Orleans. It was hot and sticky. And, uh, and, and, and Southwestern was the end place in the 1960s and 70s for Baptists to go to seminary, and I really wanted to go out there. 
but God had other plans for me. I thought about that as I drove up to Hartsville to do his, you know, I thought how, how he enriched my life and how he blessed me and, and what, what a friend and role model he'd been to me. And his family is mourning. Now, 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 they're glad he's not suffering anymore, but they miss him. They miss him desperately. In heaven, there'll be no more mourning. In heaven, look at this, there'll be no more suffering, no pain. And let me say this, uh, those of you that came in this morning on walkers, or if you come in in a wheelchair, or if you come in with a cane, I want to thank you as your pastor for coming. Because I'm going to be honest, we had a lot of members this morning. They got up, and their big toe hurt. And they laid in bed, and the, and the devil said, your big toe hurts. Your, your, that toe is throbbing. It may be broken for all you know. You need to stay in bed this morning. And they listened to the devil. And I want to tell you, when I see you folks come in in wheelchairs and on walkers and with canes, and I know some of you don't have those, and you're still in pain. I know we have a lady that comes in every week, and, and she has that crippling kind of arthritis. You can just see it in her joints. But bless God, she gets up every morning and she, I want to tell you, she and those of you that come in here with walkers and wheelchairs, you preach a better, more eloquent sermon than I'll ever preach because you're showing how much you love God by getting out, making a special effort to come to God's house. And I say thank God for him. By the way, while I'm on this, thank, thank people like that when you see them. Thank, tell them thank you for coming. Thank you for the testimony you are. And by the way, this morning when your Sunday school class when your Sunday school teacher gets through teaching, thank him or thank her because they're doing that for the Lord. They're not doing that for you, but they work hard. A lot of our Sunday school teachers prepare for hours every week to teach. And nobody ever says thank you. When you go pick up your children, when you go pick up your children, thank the people in the child care area for taking care of your children, whether it's, whether it's nursery or whether it's preschool or toddler or creeper or, or crawler or whatever they're doing. Uh, thank those people for taking care of your, you know, after they come to, after they faint, they'll, they'll appreciate it. But, but remember, you know, when we mourn down here, you know why we mourn? We mourn because we love people and we're afraid we didn't tell them enough and they didn't know how much we loved them. I went yesterday and buried a cousin. We played together as boys and about a month ago, his brother, who's a Facebook friend of mine, by the way, that's the only thing I do, Okay. I, I'm not LinkedIn, I'm not LinkedIn, and I don't tweet or Twitter or twerp. I Facebook, all right? You say, well, we want you to join our... No, I, if it's on Facebook, I'll be, I've never refused except one time to accept a friend on Facebook, and some woman said she wanted to be my friend, and when I saw her profile picture, I said, if you're my friend, my wife will kill me. <laughs> so if you have a provocative Facebook picture, I will not be your friend because I like walking on the ground instead of being buried under the ground, and I don't want to be associated with people that put a provocative picture on their Facebook. But, uh, but I'm a friend to everybody, but uh, his brother and I are friends on Facebook. And he emailed me, he said, my twin brother's been diagnosed with a neurological disease. And I looked it up, and it said it was invariably fatal, that there was no cure for it. But you know what happened? They had four weeks to say goodbye. They had four weeks to make sure he was a Christian. They had four weeks to make sure he'd go to heaven. They had four weeks for him to resolve any disputes that were going on. So many times the reason we grieve and we mourn so much is because there were things that were unresolved. He said, well, preacher, you, you should have preached this five or six years ago. Uh, somebody I love died, and, and there were, let, me, let me tell you, resolve it now, okay? Just get, if you had a grudge against them, 
give it up. If they had a grudge against you, uh, then ask for forgiveness. You say, they're dead. Well, you ask God to just say you're sorry. I'm sorry I caused a, a difference of opinion. I, I, I'm sorry that, that I offended them. And, then, and ask God to forgive you. And when God forgives you, you're forgiven. Amen. Uh, you say, well, they're dead. They can't forgive me. Well, if they can't forgive you, don't worry about it. But let God forgive you for them. But admit you had a problem and you can get over that. But there won't be any of that. No more sorrow, no more suffering, no more sadness. Uh, there won't be any crying. Uh, after a time, there won't be any crying. Now, there will be a little bit of crying in heaven. You say, wait a minute, you just said there was no crying. I said, after a time, there's no crying. Because if you read the Bible very carefully, it says, and God himself shall wipe all tears from their eyes. Where did those tears come from? They came when they stood before the Lord. I think we stand before God. You say, well, I'm not an emotional person. Well, you had not stood before God yet, have you? You may not be emotional here on earth, but I want to tell you, when you stand before Jesus and you see the nail prints in his hands and you see the crown, the, the scars from the crown of thorns on his head and you see that place in his side and you see his back and you see all those wounds where he was wounded for our transgressions and he was bruised for our iniquities and, and the chastisement of our peace was upon him and by his stripes were healed. I dare you to stand there dry-eyed. You will be weeping. If you've never wept before, you will weep in that moment and God will take his big everlasting fingers and the Bible says this it says God himself will wipe away all their tears and when God says that he says no more tears now no more tears now never cry again no more sadness no more sin in heaven notice it says God will live with them God cannot dwell where sin is that's why God cannot Look upon evil. His eyes are holy. He is holy. And so if God is dwelling with us, we are no longer sinful. In fact, the Bible very plainly says it. When we see him, we shall know him, for we shall be like him. We will be like Jesus. Well, you know, come to think of it, I don't need to add that eighth thing. This fits in right here. Because notice what it says in verse 8. When it says no more sin, that's really what this is. Notice there's some people that won't be there. And look, look at that first word, the cowardly. Isn't, isn't it terrible for God not to let cowards go to heaven? You know why people are cowardly? Because they don't trust God. You see, if you trust God, you don't have to be afraid of anything. You don't have to be afraid of man if you trust God. You don't have to be afraid of tomorrow if you trust God. You don't have to be afraid of cancer if you trust God. You say, well, you can say that. Yeah, I can say that. I've had cancer twice. I had, four, I had 30 chemo washes. Uh, last one I took almost killed me. Uh, but I was never afraid of death. I never was. Why? Because I knew I was going to heaven. I wasn't fearful at all. Uh, when you have Jesus in your heart, you don't worry about those things. People who don't have God in their life are afraid. And he's not saying just because they're cowardly. He says because they, and if you have faith, you can't have fear. That's the point. But then notice what else he says. The unbelieving. I think that's going to get about 98%. I think that's really going to get. Now you say, are you sure of that? Well, that's an educated guess. But I'm going to be honest with you. I know a whole lot more unbelievers than I know these other folks. And there are other folks here. The sexually immoral, the murderers, the vile. Had murder last week in Pelham. You see, it's right here. But they won't be in heaven. They say, what if a murderer gets saved? He can go to heaven then because he's a forgiven murderer. 
And by the way, before you, before you say, well, I would never, ever kill anybody, you ever get mad at anybody? Boy, it gets quiet in this church when you preach. Do you ever get mad at anybody? Sure you do. You get mad. You may lose your temper. You know what Jesus said? He said, he who is angry with his brother, without cause. Now, some things ought to make us angry. When I heard about that man who took that little baby and threw that little baby against the wall and didn't say anything to the baby's mama, and when the baby's mama came in, she noticed something was wrong with the baby, and they got the baby to the hospital, and the doctor said, man, something is wrong with this baby. They took the baby to children's. They did everything they could, and the baby died. Now I want to tell you, that ought to, that ought to make you angry because that child was abused. Our church has a stand absolutely against any form of child abuse. I disciplined my children when they were growing up. I had two boys, and I had to use some pretty stern discipline. I never beat my children. I did discipline them. There's a difference between disciplining and beating children. And I don't think beating children is a thing Christ would honor. Do we discipline children? We better. <laughs> because if we can't teach children to obey us, they'll never learn to obey God. You need to understand that. All these, I would say probably though, about 98% will be in that unbelieving. They're, they're not numerically that many of these others. Now there probably are a lot of sexually moral, probably a lot more than I know of. Those who practice magic arts, by the way, that has in it an idea of drug abuse. What's the, what is the problem in our land today? We have two huge drug problems nobody ever wants to talk about. The first drug problem is alcohol. Now you hear it on TV, oh, don't drink and drive. I got news for you. If you don't drink, you don't have to worry about not driving. Just don't drink it. You're, oh, well, preacher, you know, I, I, I want to just be with my friends. Listen, be a good example to your friends. Uh, drink something that won't make you act crazy and do things that you regret doing. But this has all to do with drugs, and alcohol is a drug. And then, and then I'll tell you something else. We have a lot of prescription drug abuse. It scares me to death, the number of people who can't exist. And I know some of you are in pain, and I understand that. But I hope that you're conscious enough about it to talk to your doctor. If you feel like you're getting addicted, let a health professional know. You need help. But this has to do with drug abuse. Magic art, the idolaters, and all liars. Uh-oh. Well, that's a thousand percent right there. Uh, everybody has lied at some time or another. And one lie, one lie is enough to separate you from God because that's a sin. Well, they won't be in heaven. There's no more sin in heaven. And then there's no more sun. Now, I thought this would make Mary sad. And so I started not to preach it, but it's in here, so I had to preach it. The city does not need the sun or the moon to shine on it for the glory of God gives it light and the lamb is its lamp. Now, Mary was in the early service and I told her this. I said, I'm glad you're sitting over there because I was going to talk about My wife loves a sunset. We, we sat on the rim of the Grand Canyon several years ago and held hands and watched the sun go down. And uh, as the sun went down and those rays hit the different parts of the canyon, it was simply gorgeous. I mean, no artist could paint it my words failed to describe it. It was just a breathtaking experience. And my wife loves sunsets. And when I told her this this morning, I said, I, I don't want you to be discouraged, though, because there's no sunsets, nor sunrises, nor moon in heaven. But I want to tell you this. If God could paint a sunset 
like he does in a sin-cursed world, what will the skies in heaven look like? I mean, every moment will be like a sunset. Every moment will be like a sunrise. It will be glorious. Don't worry about the old sun. We just don't need him anymore. Why? Because the S-O-N will be there, not the S-U-N. No more sun. And then this, no more separation, no more death. Billy Graham's just written a book called Nearing Home. And uh, I didn't get my quote from that book today, but he said, you know, I, I prepared for death, but I never did prepare for growing old. And he always thought he would die before Ruth, but he didn't. And uh, he, said, he said he's had to learn kind of a whole new outlook on growing old. And that's what that book, Nearing Home, is about. But in a book he printed years ago called The Journey, here's what he says about heaven. I thought, and I took, you won't find this one quote anywhere, but it's all his words contained between 483 and 498. He says, and I love this, the Bible doesn't answer all our questions about heaven and what it will be like because heaven is far more glorious than anything we can imagine. Heaven is the most perfect and beautiful place we can conceive, only more so. Only in heaven will we know exactly what heaven is like. That is a truth I wish I had thought to say. Only in heaven will we know exactly what heaven is like. Four truths about heaven are, in heaven we will be with God. In heaven we will be home. In heaven we will be like Christ. In heaven we will be part of a new creation. These truths give us hope, a purpose to live on earth, and encourage us to live every moment on earth for Christ. Don't waste your life and don't be satisfied with anything less than God's plan. And here's the question. Heaven's wonderful and I haven't done it justice. No human tongue can. But have you followed God's plan for your life? Are you walking where God wants you to walk? Are you in the path that he's laid out for you or have you strayed to the right or the left? Are you doing what God wants you to do this morning? Is there th are there things you're leaving undone you should be doing? Are there things you're doing you should not be doing? You think about it. Are you following God's plan for your life this morning? Let's pray together. Father, I thank you.